You are now listening to the MS podcast by Sanofi Genzyme. In this podcast, the brain takes center stage when Ole Petteriella, best-selling author and professional speaker, explores the different dimensions of MS and brain health through conversations with international specialists within neuroscience, psychology and physical activity. In this episode, we will challenge the dogma that MS is an inflammatory disease and make the case that the underlying neurodegenerative component of MS is what MS really is. Therefore, we have to go beyond simply rendering people with MS free of relapses and MRI activity, but have to prevent end organ damage or accelerated brain volume loss. In this episode, we have the pleasure of having Professor Gavin Giovannoni, a specialist in neurology in the studio. Welcome, Gavin. Thank you very much. So what can you tell us about the real MS? So the real MS is based on insights we have from studying the full spectrum of the disease. So um, as you're probably aware, there's about 15% of patients present what they call a primary progressive disease. And these people have worsening of disability from the outset with no apparent relapses. And the other 85% of people um, have what we call relapse onset multiple sclerosis and have uh, attacks or inflammatory events uh, that are linked to MRI activity. Um, We think this is one disease because within families, you can have relapse onset or primary progressive disease and people can switch between the two uh, spectrum. Primary progressive patients can go on to have relapses and people with relapse onset disease eventually end up becoming progressive without obvious relapses. So there is this overlap between the the, the two phenotypes, we call them. What we do know now that is when you look at natural history studies, the uh, relapses uh, and the MRI activity that go with the relapses really don't predict outcome in natural history studies. And even in clinical trials, in the placebo arms, they don't predict outcome. Uh, and so this has led us to led us to the insight that we can't rely on relapse as an MRI activity to explain the disease because if it did explain the disease, it would predict the outcome regardless of whether you're in a trial or not. So this is why we don't think that is the disease. And what probably is is the disease is this gradual worsening that occurs independent of these uh, relapses or inflammatory events. In other words, the primary progressive form of the disease. Uh, and we now know that there are much better biomarkers for that component of the disease, particularly uh, brain volume loss. We, we're seeing these lesions on MRI scan that we call slowly expanding lesions. Um, there are lesions in the uh, gray matter called the, these diffuse gray matter lesions. That, and we think those pathologies are probably what the real MS is. And what we're seeing in terms of relapse and MRI activity is in response to the real disease. And so uh, there's now been a shift, well, there is a shift happening in the field uh, that we have to go way beyond just suppressing relapses and MRI activity. We really have to uh, slow down um, the other pathologies, the pathologies that are causing the progressive brain volume loss, the pathology that's causing these slowly expanding lesions. And we're going to have to start targeting whatever's causing these lesions to occur in the gray matter in the cortex. Uh, and, And so this is what I call the real MS. Yeah, so focal MRI activity and relapses doesn't accurately predict outcome of MS. Yeah, unfortunately not. I mean, and if people want to uh, understand the science behind this, I would recommend they read Apprentice. Uh, Apprentice uh, is the person who's put forward the theory behind what we call surrogate endpoints. And for, for a surrogate endpoint uh, to predict the disease, it has to be in the pathway. And actually, when you when you actually apply Apprentice's criteria 
two MRI activity. These are focal lesions, GAD-enhancing lesions or new T2 or enlarging lesions or even relapses. They don't fulfill parenthesis criteria, which tells us that it can't be the disease. They are probably a, a biomarker in response to what's causing the disease. So you're talking about surrogate markers or surrogate endpoints. Uh, yeah. Which endpoint should we use? Well, at the end of the day, the one that has the most validity in terms of outcome has to be disability. Now, unfortunately, the MS field is fixated on physical disability, walking problems, which, which is what the EDSS measures. Um, however, if you go a little bit deeper and look at the hidden symptoms, it's clearly uh, uh, you know, the disease has a lot of hidden problems uh, related to cognition, related to a sensory phenomenon. So um, I think at the end of the day, we should be measuring clinical outcomes, but we should be doing uh, a lot more than just the EDSS. We should be looking at multiple systems and actually we should be using stress tests. And one of the things we find is our outcome measures is what we can measure in a clinic. And that's not really that relevant. What we should be doing is what we should be, we should, we should be measuring things that affect people's ability to function in society and in work, for example. And uh, so we're going to have to start shifting our focus away from physical disabilities and start focusing on cognition. Uh, and, we, and we now know the cognitive problems in MS probably predate the uh, physical problems by uh, decades, to be honest with you. Most people... Um, acquire the cognition problems before they become physically disabled. Could you explain to us what you mean about the term pyra or progression independent of relapse activity? Yeah, so pyra, pyra uh, is a term we've applied uh, retrospectively. So you know, m- most of the listeners of this podcast will understand that when we make a diagnosis of so-called secondary progressive MS, it's done retrospectively. Uh, in other words, query somebody's got progressive disease and you bring them back in a year's time and if they've got worse... You got label them and you go back and make and, and you apply the, the secondary progressive disease the year before. Uh, so therefore, in any clinical trial of relapse onset, relapse remitting MS, there's going to be a proportion of patients that will fulfill the criteria for secondary progressive disease. So when we go and analyze data in relapsing trials, what you can then do is you can look for people that are getting worse independent of relapses. And there's two ways of doing that. You can actually look at the relapse-free population or you can re-baseline them after a relapse. Um, We usually use 30 or 60 days after a relapse. And that then becomes the baseline for looking at worsening. And not surprisingly, uh, about a quarter of people in relapse and remitting trials will get worse independent of relapses. And, that, and so that's what we would call secondary progression within a relapsing remitting trial. And that's what I would call the real MS. So, um, you know, a significant number of people that are supposed to have relapsing remitting MS are getting worse, uh, independent of relapses. And so that's what we refer to as uh, PRA progression independent of relapse activity. It's identifying that in clinical trials. Let's talk a little bit about how we can maximize lifelong brain health for MS patients. What do you mean by the term end organ damage? So end organ damage is like, it's a term we borrowed from really the renal field. Uh, So renal physicians talk about when somebody's got kidney failure or they've got abnormal kidney function, they talk about can they preserve that kidney, in other words, prevent it from becoming an end-stage kidney when it's shrunken and, and not functioning. And so we do the same in, in MS is uh, end organ damage means when we can measure the, the damage to the brain and spinal cord, that's usually irreversible. And so this is uh, what I mean by end organ damage. It's the loss of neurons, loss of axons that occurs over time and results in the brain and spinal cord shrinking. And uh, it's very important for us to try and prevent end organ damage because as you probably are aware, uh, life in itself is a, a, a neurodegenerative disease 
disease, if we all live long enough, we all acquire age-dependent cognitive impairment. And what protects us from developing age-dependent cognitive issues is brain reserve. In other words, the size of the brain. And then it's also cognitive reserve. Cognitive reserve is linked to education and environmental enrichment. But both of those get shredded by MS. MS reduces the size of the brain and also reduces cognitive reserve. And so if you want to be able to get people with multiple sclerosis to age relatively normally, you've really got to maximize their brain health in in a sense, give them as much brain when they get older. And so this is why we're trying to shift the treatment target away from short-term goals to try and think about these patients when they're in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and hopefully get them there with enough brain so that they can age relatively normally. And this end organ damage to the brain, we can measure by measuring brain volume. Yes. Uh, Unfortunately, everybody loses brain volume. That's part of normal aging. So most people from about the age of 35 will see their brain shrinking at a rate of about 0.1 to 0.3% per year. And uh, people with multiple sclerosis brains shrink at a rate of about double that, uh, even higher. In some studies, it can be up to, depending on which metric you use, up to seven times normal. And that's probably the MS disease doing it. And so what we really need to do is target brain volume loss. In other words, can we normalize brain volume loss? So, I mean, we all lose brain volume as we age, but MS patients more rapidly than the healthy population. What kind of consequences does it have for the MS patients uh, when they lose brain volume? Well, brain volume loss has been linked to lots of things. So people with brain volume loss at baseline have a worse outcome. They reach disability milestones much quicker than those without brain volume loss. So that's actually just cross-sectional brain volume loss. And those with longitudinal brain volume loss also do badly. It predicts disability outcomes, it predicts cognitive problems, predicts unemployment rates, it uh, impacts on quality of life. So, you know, it's kind of like an integrator of all the pathology that's occurring in the brain and spinal cord of an individual with MS. And so we now know that it's a very powerful prognostic outcome measure, brain volume loss, particularly if it's profound. Sanofi Genzyme is a proud sponsor of the Global MS Brain Health Initiative, where the aim is to maximize lifelong brain health for people living with MS, creating a better future for everyone affected by the disease. The initiative calls for greater urgency at every stage from diagnosing, treating and managing MS. Time matters in MS. Read more about the initiative at msbrainhealth.org. Can you tell us a little bit about the term active and for that matter, inactive MS? Active MS or inactive MS. So this actually comes from having an MRI-centric view of the world in the sense that um, we tend to view multiple sclerosis as being active when people are having relapses or they've got new MRI lesions, new T2 or gait-enhancing lesions. And so the uh, MS community defines people with relapses and MRI activity as having active MS. And those that don't have relapses and MRI activity have inactive MS. Well, I think that's personally wrong, uh, simply because even when you take those patients that don't have relapse and MRI activity and you look at their brains at post-mortem, the majority of them have got active inflammation going on. And so those patients may not have inflammatory activity that you can measure on MRI, but they clearly have inflammatory activity under the microscope. So, you know, trying to tell somebody they've got inactive MS when they're getting worse is not ideal. So I personally don't like 
this division between active and inactive MS. I think we should be using another term for that. And I I like the term smoldering. And these patients' brains are clearly inflamed. We just can't pick it up with our current technology, which is MRI. But if we have better technology, we'll almost certainly find ongoing inflammation in those brains and spinal cord. And so the term smoldering kind of captures um, uh, inflammation, the activity happening at a level that's beneath the threshold of our MRI scanner. But I'm wondering if you have a patient that has been labeled as having inactive MS because of lack of relapses or uh, MRI activity, what if you measure brain volume on these patients? Can you still see a loss of brain volume? Oh, yes. I mean, so there will be a proportion of those patients that it may have, say, burnt out MS. In other words, their brain volume loss may not be that great or maybe normal. And actually, they have been described. There have been patients like that um, in the Cleveland Clinic series that um, had burnt out MS. But the majority will have accelerated brain volume loss. So there is something driving this pathology that's just not been picked up on um, on, on MRI. So definitely, yep. the majority will have accelerated brain volume loss. Obviously, it is important to try to diagnose and start treatment of MS early in the course of the disease. Can you say something about the implications for the patients uh, regarding how early the diagnosis is set and treatment starts? Yeah, so the diagnosis is based on when they present. So, you know, um, and, and we now know that there's an asymptomatic period and that can be possibly a decade. And that's based on a whole lot of natural history studies. That when we get patients at the clinically isolated syndrome at their first event, um, a lot majority of them have lesions on their MRI scans. 80% will have other lesions that are old. So they've occurred in the past. And when you actually interrogate those brains with cognitive tests, for example, about quarter of those patients, it's maybe even more, up to 40% at CIS would really have uh, cognitive impairment. They really are uh, showing signs of what I call MS dementia, progressive uh, cognition problems. And so they've had the disease for years, potentially a decade. And so, you know, we, we, we like to think of early MS as when we get the first attack, but that's really probably several years into the disease. And so we got to then shift people's attention away. We need to treat those patients quite aggressively in the sense that we want to protect those brains for when they get older. And so, uh, you know, treatment strategies should be around, you know, should be from a preventative medicine uh, perspective. What we're trying to do is protect those brains for the future. So when it comes to treating early, if we get those patients in the asymptomatic phase, even better. Gavin, you say that MS is one, not two or three diseases. What do you mean by that? These four subtypes of MS don't fulfill criteria for a disease. So MS is actually just one disease. From a genetic perspective, pathology, CSF findings, MRI, it's one disease. When does progressive MS begin? Well, progressive MS is it's there from the beginning. So the pathology that underlies progressive MS is a neuron and axonal loss. And you know when you actually look at patients, even the asymptomatic phase of the disease, there is evidence of... And in neuronal and axonal loss, brain volume loss, cortical or gray matter loss. So the process underlying progressive disease is there from the beginning. The reason why you don't often see it is because people compensate for the damage. And then when their compensatory mechanisms run out, in other words, they've lost their reserve, that's when you see the so-called progression, the worsening without obvious relapses occurring. And so then we call that the progressive phase. But that pathology is there from the very beginning of the disease. Can you say something about what you believe is the causative factors or the driving processes underlying progressive MS? The main theory still is that inflammation drives all the processes. So if you stop the inflammatory component, then all other downstream events uh, won't happen. 
the current thinking is inflammation actually sets up the processes that then drive the progressive phase of the disease. So the inflammatory events is really damaging the, the myelin axone unit. And then what happens is you get recovery of function. So that the recovery of function could be axonal plasticity. You synthesize sodium channels uh, down demyelinated segments. That actually puts that axon uh, at risk of dying off because the energy required to transmit down demyelinated segments is quite high. Uh, and there is animal data to suggest that those axons are primed to die in the future. That's why we're trying to promote remyelination to try and improve the energetics of the cell. So uh, demyelination is one of the uh, other drivers of uh, delayed axonal loss. Some of, some people think there's a virus. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in the future we, there is a virus there that the you know, microglia responding to a viral infection. The leading candidates for Epstein-Barr virus and endogenous uh, retroviruses. And there are some treatment strategies targeting viruses that have been tested in more advanced disease right now. And then obviously, uh, we, we discussed this already, is premature aging. You know, uh, by reducing reserve, you bring forward aging mechanisms and maybe some of the delayed worsening we see in multiple sclerosis is from aging. So there's lots of different mechanisms that are driving this progressive pathology downstream of the inflammation. But the current thinking is if you hit up front very hard and stop lesion formation, you actually you know, suspend this cascade or you reduce the cascade. That's the argument for treating the disease early, is to try and prevent the, or reduce the inflammatory burden. So of these three hypotheses, uh, I understand that the viral hypothesis is the one you uh, mostly believe in? Well, I think we look at the epidemiology of MS. There's a really strong link between Epstein-Barr virus and MS, so, so much so that it ticks almost all the boxes for causation. So that's one of the um, strategies for preventing MS is to try and prevent people getting Epstein-Barr virus infection. How EBV drives the disease, we don't know. It could, could simply be a trigger up front and then other processes drive the disease. But some people are, uh, you know, there is some evidence that it actually may be responsible for not only triggering the disease, but driving the disease. And this is why there are currently trials going on targeting uh, Epstein-Barr virus, both in relapsing and progressive disease. So let's talk a little about the clinical implications of what we've been talking about today, Gavin. Could you give clinicians, neurologists, some concrete take-home messages in how to optimize the treatment and follow-up of uh, MS patients? Yes, I think the messages are pretty clear. In terms of MS pathology, we need to treat this disease uh, effectively as early as possible. Uh, and effectively, I mean, is we need to treat the target and try and render these patients free of disease activity. However, we uh, we know that that's not good enough uh, in the sense that a proportion of those patients will still have accelerated brain volume loss. <clears throat> and in addition to that, we need to manage the patients holistically and target things that we know improve brain health in the general population. And so this is why we have to make sure our patients are living a brain-healthy lifestyle. They should be exercising. They should be watching their diets. They should improve their sleep hygiene. They should avoid medications that can affect brain health. So there's lots that can be done that is not MS-specific. And I think, you know, to optimize long-term outcomes, we're going to have to focus uh, not only on MS mechanisms, but in, uh, on generalized brain health for our patients. My feeling is that the majority of clinicians, neurologists, when they deal with MS patients, they are still focusing on focal MRI activity and relapse activity. And yes. you are advocating a different approach, a more holistic approach, uh, wh where you are saying that disability and brain volume loss is what is driving MS. How can we change that? I think 
this is one of the educations that this podcast is hopefully educating neurologists, general neurologists about that we're moving beyond NIDA, beyond focal inflammation. And we have to start thinking about this disease as being a whole brain disease. And it's not just about inflammation, it's about other processes. And it's also about general brain health. And we have to be proactive about this. So yes, you know, anybody working in the MS space will understand that we have to go beyond NIDA. We have to think about the real disease and we have to also think about aspects of general health and biology that impact on MS outcomes if we want to maximize the outcomes for our patients in the long term. Well, it'd be really interesting to see what the future will bring and if your ideas will gain uh, enough traction that we uh, see clinicians changing their uh, practice on how to deal with MS patients. Really, thank you a lot for uh, taking the time. Uh, Very interesting and fascinating talk. Gavin? Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the MS Podcast by Sanofi Genzyme. 